second, the beginning of Mark 11. So on page 1007. Pew Bible there. Jerusalem at last. From about 827 onward, Jesus has been moving towards Jerusalem, sort of slowly meandering, but two and a half chapters on the journey to Jerusalem. Mark's 16 chapters long, and chapter 16 is fairly short, so that's over an eighth of the book. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have been traveling from the northern region to Jerusalem. The first seven chapters uh, intermixed, as you'll recall, a couple sections of parables and teaching with some miracles and various events going on. But then chapters 8 through 10, it's been this intensive block of teaching on the way of discipleship. Now Jerusalem at last. And at least the way Mark tells the story, the the rest of the book, about a third of the book in total, is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. I say as Mark tells the story because in John's Gospel, it seems that Jesus is in the region of Jerusalem from the Feast of Dedication until Passover, about a period of three or four months. Uh, And he's kind of going back and forth where Lazarus is uh, in the city of Bethany, not far from Jerusalem, kind of seems to be in that area. And so it's possible or even probable that Mark has compressed a little bit larger series down into this week. Uh, uh, But he's driving home this point, the week A week made the world. God made the world in a week, and now God is remaking the world in a week. Uh, The Passover, that great deliverance from Egypt, is celebrated through a week feast, and now the true and greater Passover celebrated on this week. We enter into another section here, chapter 11 through 13, that perhaps it's a little bit too strong, but if if 8 through 10 is, is teaching on the way or discipleship on the way, Chapters 11 through 13 are Jesus versus the temple, okay? Uh, And uh, I sent you the stuff on cleaning the temple. Okay, I had a panic attack that I sent you the wrong section. Sorry, Uh, that's good. Uh, Nate's going to teach next week on cleansing the temple, uh, and that'll be great. And and we'll see it out Uh, in chapter 12. There's a series of debates back and forth with leaders from the temple, Pharisees, Sadducees, temple leaders, scribes. And then in uh, chapter 13 is this long extended portion that begins with a warning about the destruction of the temple uh, and and, and moves much farther beyond that. But that's a couple weeks away yet. Let's read Mark 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you and immediately... As you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. 
And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect on this passage that is very familiar to many of us, may our eyes be opened that we can see wonderful truth in your word, but even more importantly, see your son more clearly. May we be faithful servants of the true king. May we be servants who long for the return of our king. Amen. 11.1, they draw near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is a long ridge that runs north to south uh, across a valley from the city of Jerusalem. For those who are worried about elevation, it's 2,900 feet above sea level. Jericho is some feet below sea level, so in a journey of about 18 miles, they've climbed about 3,000 feet. Uh, not a hugely steep path, but still, it's some climbing to do. The Mount of Olives is where, in Ezekiel, uh, when Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple, the glory cloud leaves the temple, and it rests for a period of time on the Mount of Olives. And now Jesus returns. Up the 18 miles or so from Jericho, finally they cross the Mount of Olives, and they see the city at last. Finally, they see the city. Anyone coming up from Jericho to Jerusalem, it's kind of a, an achievement. 18 miles, some climbing, you finally get high enough that you can see the city. But particularly at the time of pilgrimage, uh, Passover and the other feasts, these people have been traveling for days uh, to get here, and at last they've reached the city, and they know that there's going to be friends from other areas that they haven't seen. They know there's going to be feasting and celebration and worship. And so there's excitement. And then for Jesus' followers, Jesus has been warning them about what's going to happen. And in the last warning, he says, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be put to death. And so you can imagine all these emotions swirling together. Uh, we've been on pilgrimage, we've made it to the city, there's feasting, there's celebration, there's worship, and yet the disciples still don't seem to really understand what's going to happen to Jesus, and yet there's something playing in the back of their head, some concern, some worry. They crest the mount, and they would see the city opposite, and the most prominent building in the city, can anyone guess what it is? The temple. The temple mounts the highest point in the city, and the temple is the highest building in the city, and so from almost anywhere in Jerusalem, you could see the temple, at least the top of it. I guess it's a bit like Mount Baker here. You can drive all around the county, and yet you can generally have a little glimpse of the top of Mount Baker. It's a bit like that. Jesus sends two disciples into the, uh, a, a village. It doesn't tell us which village, perhaps Bethany, perhaps Bethphage. It struck me this week, uh, Jesus here in verses 2 and 3 gives uh, an instruction to the disciples, and then he doesn't say anything else again until he curses this fig tree that we'll look at next week in verse 14, uh, at least in Mark's gospel. In Luke's, there's a kind of a back and forth where the Pharisees ask him to silence 
the disciples, and he says, then the rocks will cry out, and he weeps over the city. So Luke records some other things. But in Mark's telling of the story, he gives the instructions. There's no response to the crowds. He goes into the temple and look around. There's no word that he says. They head back to Bethany. He says nothing. It's, in Mark's telling, he seems to be quiet, uh, sort of holding his own. He tells these disciples, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, there's two possibilities. Probably there's a third possibility, but at least there's two possibilities. One is this is simply Christ exercising foreknowledge. Um, Remember, uh, in, in John's Gospel, he sees, uh, I think it's Nathaniel sitting under a tree, uh, that he does seem to have this supernatural insight into things. And so perhaps he has supernatural insight, recognizing that there is going to be this cult in the city. Uh, so it could be foreknowledge. The other option, though, is that it could be foreplanning. He could have arranged ahead of time with someone to have a donkey waiting for them and this signal. At any rate, it's specified that it's a fresh cult or a cult on which no one has ever sat. Uh, a colt is sort of a generic word for a young animal, so it is applied uh, in Greek to a variety of animals. Um, I was surprised to find reading this week even to camels and elephants. I hadn't realized that those could be called colts. Uh, given the region of Palestine and what's going on, it's almost certainly a young donkey on which he is seated. And it emphasizes that no one has ever sat on it before. It's not exactly clear what to make of that, but we do have these hints in the Old Testament that these uh, animals that have never been used for secular purposes are fit for sacred purposes. So in Numbers 19, uh, there's one of the uh, uh, most, uh, well, no one's quite sure what to make of it, but this red heifer uh, uh, ritual where you send out a red heifer and sacrifice it, and it stresses that it's a red heifer that no yoke has ever been put on before. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, if there's an unsolved murder, how do you purify the land by offering certain sacrifices? And that involves a heifer which has never been used to plow before. And so it seems in the Old Testament, it's an unused animal, is, is, it's right, it's fitting for sacred purposes. That should perhaps be ringing in our ear. If they're challenged, what are they to say? Yeah, the Lord has need of it. That's interesting. Uh, that word Lord could be used in just sort of a generic sense to refer to the master or owner of something. Well, certainly he's not the owner of this donkey, uh, it's, but it can also be used in a much more proper sense, even to refer to the Lord God, as the Lord has need of it. And so there's a little bit of ambiguity here. And yet, who is this who can just say, I'm the Lord of this donkey? Uh, uh, it's perhaps God the Creator, Jesus the Lord. Well, verses 4 through 6 tell us that it plays out as Jesus says. They go into the village. They find a colt tied at a door outside in the street. They untie it. Some people standing there challenge them. What are you doing untying this colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the coat to, colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Uh, we can miss the import of that if we move too quickly. Most of us own more than one shirt. Most of us own more than one jacket. And so throwing a jacket on a horse, it's like, well, they had to do what they had to do. Uh, in the ancient world, especially in Palestine, uh, a relatively poor area, it's not like people would have an overabundance of coats. This would be like their one good winter coat. Maybe it would be the closest we get to that. Uh, 
if, if your t-shirt gets ripped, your mom's not going to be that upset, right? If your good winter coat gets ripped and ruined, uh, that's kind of a bigger deal, right? We're kind of getting close to where they're at. This is like there are one or two outfits, and they're taking one off, putting it on a horse or a donkey. I could handle that. But then they're throwing their cloaks on the road and putting down these branches, leafy branches they'd cut from the fields, putting on the road. Uh, this seems to be picking up an uh, uh, image of kingship from ancient Israel. So when Yehu is made king in 2 Kings chapter 8, the people take off their cloaks and spread them on the stairs so that Yehu can walk on the cloaks. They kind of make an impromptu red carpet to walk on. Uh, I guess we have those red carpets at Oscars, those sorts of award things. Uh, I, don't, I don't know where else. Maybe balls, coronations? I wasn't there... Uh, I guess there's a coronation coming up. Maybe they'll have a red carpet. I don't know. But that's the kind of symbol of a, of a special a weddings. That's where you have a special carpet sometimes, right? Or a runner. I don't know what it's. I'm trying for illustrations. Come on, guys. Help me here. This is a special thing to walk on. OK, yeah. And in ancient Israel, at least Yahoo, he walks on the cloaks. Here, though, Jesus rides a donkey on the cloaks. Those who go before and who follow are shouting. Oh, whoops, I'm going too fast. What's this business about riding on a donkey? Zechariah 9, uh, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. The king is coming. And yet, even in Zechariah's prophecy, he's righteous and has salvation. He's gentle and riding on a donkey. The king is coming, but he's riding not on a war horse, uh, not on a chariot in front of a huge Roman army, but on a donkey. Yeah, Chris. Is there any reference at all to this is an untrained animal? Is it, would it become a bucking bronco? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that, that it's an uh, untrained animal. No one's ever ridden on it before, and yet he gets on it and rides in, apparently in a serene manner. Not uh, you know like a wild horse rodeo type situation. Uh, yeah, and Mark does have this emphasis, or not emphasis, but kind of a subdued theme about Christ and and cre and the animals. Um, I think in the wilderness doesn't isn't it in Mark that it talks about the animals being with him, uh, the wild animals, unless it's in Luke. I'm almost certain it's in. Now I'm gonna have to look it up. Good good point though, Chris. Uh, He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And I think there's another spot where there's a reference to the wild animals in Mark's gospel or to animals in a way that's not in the other gospels. Um, uh, yeah, certainly that's, a, that's a, an aspect of it. And the other part is that the, the point being made here is he is a king and yet he can't just be plugged into the world's conception of what a king looks like. Okay, people knew what the Caesar looked like, they knew how the Caesar behaved, they knew how Herod acted. They knew that sort of thing. And Jesus isn't just saying, yeah, I'm another one of those. It's something different, a different sort of kingship. Uh, righteous, having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey. Um, uh, Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, that's on the Gospel of Mark, he draws attention to a sermon of Jonathan Edwards on Christ's excellency. And Jonathan Edwards uh, uh, really drives home this point in that sermon on, on the paradoxes of Christ that he combines together in his person 
things that we think shouldn't go together. And so in Christ, we see both majesty and meekness. We see this, this, this mighty majesty and complete humility. In Christ's teaching, we see perfect justice, and yet we also see his boundless mercy. We see his sovereignty over things, even calling this donkey his own. Uh, he's the Lord, and yet we see him in submission to God the Father. In many ways, he seems self-sufficient. He's not worried about where his money's going to come from. He's not worried about those sorts of things, and yet we see him also totally dependent on God. And I think that's certainly what we see in Mark's depiction of him entering Jerusalem. Mark's cluing us in. This is the king coming home to his city, the return of the king, and yet he's a king unlike the kings of the world. He's a majestic king, but also a meek king. He's a sovereign lord, and yet he's submitted to God. The crowd's acclamation, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It's picking up the language of Psalm 118. I won't read that whole psalm now, but in Psalm 118, and I, it's somewhat fresh in my mind because we went through Psalm four years ago, but I suppose it's not as fresh in your minds from four years ago going through Psalm 118. But uh, there is Psalm 118. It's the last of the Hillel Psalms, which were used for, by pilgrims going up to Jerusalem. And the first 18 verses of Psalm 118, they talk about a king winning a royal victory. He's thanking God for the great victory that he has had. But then at verse 19, it turns the corner and the same speaker says, open up you gates and is leading the people into the city and into the temple to worship. And so the figure who speaks in Psalm 118 is both a royal king who leads the army in battle and is a high priest who leads the people in worship, combined in one figure. And then verses 25 and 26 have this response. Save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm not quite sure that the people yelling this out really had any clue what they're saying or the full implications of it, but certainly Mark, this is the way his uh, uh, gospel works, is he's, he's gently ironic the whole time. The people are saying, yeah, we're just singing the last of Psalm 118. Here's this guy, Jesus. He's a prophet. Uh, but even when he gets to the temple in verse 11, the crowd seems to have dissipated. Certainly by the time he's on the cross, the crowd is gone. Uh, and yet, Mark wants us to pick up the full implications of this. That Christ is the victorious king and the high priest, the one who can indeed save us, who comes in the name of the Lord, who comes with the Lord's own name, upon him. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Again, they seem to be thinking, okay, the Davidic kingship, that rule is going to get reinstated. And yet th that's true and not true, not in the way they think. And yet all of the promises to David, the covenant that's sworn to David in 1 Samuel 7, all of that is indeed coming to fruition, to fulfillment. Here is the forever king who will rule on David's throne without end. Notice the end point of his journey, though, is not simply Jerusalem, but the temple itself. He comes up to Jerusalem, he enters the city, he goes all the way into the temple. When he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. A couple comments here. 
first in Psalm 118, verse 26, it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then it continues, We bless you from the house of the Lord. In that same verse. They say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's Jesus in the house of the Lord. And no one blesses him from the house of the Lord. Jesus arrives in the temple to no acclaim, indeed no response. He simply looks, Mark says, at, around at everything. It's not just a quick peek. He seems to be walking around, inspecting things, and then quietly leaves. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. And this is setting it up a little bit for next week's teaching, that it's not Jesus coming into the temple and just flying off the handle and losing his temper. It seemed, he already came the night before, he inspected everything. He seems to go back and reflect on it over the night. <laughs> comes back the next day. It is a premeditated action when he comes in and cleans out the temple. But I won't say any more and leave the rest for Nate next Sunday. But Mark's setting us up here again, and it's the way Mark works. The disciples, they keep saying things, and they don't quite realize the full implication of what they're saying, at least not yet. And it's the same way here. There's this crowd. We already sense that they're a little bit fickle. They are crying out for salvation, and here's the one who can save them. They're saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Indeed, he comes in the name of the Lord, and he's fulfilling, he's bringing about the kingdom of David, but it's not going to look the way they think it should look. It's a king who is both majestic and meek, who comes riding on a donkey, and his enthronement isn't going to be on a throne like the Caesar, but ultimately he comes into his glory, his kingdom, his throne on the cross. And so Mark holds together these paradoxes of discipleship and, and, and of Christ and his mission. Any other last comments on the entry? Yeah, Jack. This whole thing is just a fulfillment of scripture, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, he didn't do anything else but do the donkey and the cloaks and the hosanna and go to the temple and go stay with his friends and brethren. Yeah. It's like he says, okay, I've got to do this. It's right here in the scripture. Yeah. I, he's God, he knows that stuff. So I wonder how, my question right there is how much does Jesus, a man, God, know um, what he's doing? Yeah. Does he go and say, oh, I was tired of that, I had to do this? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, Luke emphasizes perhaps more than Mark that Jesus grows in wisdom and understanding and that he's, uh, I, I, it's in Luke where he's in the temple uh, asking questions with the teachers there and Mary and Joseph when he's 12 and Mary and Joseph think he's lost and come back and find him. Um, so Luke more than Mark emphasizes that Jesus does grow in his understanding of scripture. And so I think he's meditating on scripture constantly to understand what is the mission of the Messiah. And I don't think it's simply you know, God, because he's God, he has special insight. That's certainly true. Uh, but even as a perfect human, he has insight into God's word that others should have had if they were reading it rightly. Uh, and he's so, so... That thing about getting on a wild donkey, I mean, yep. I don't know how many people here have ever jumped on an animal that's never been ridden unless you've been to a rodeo and see what happens. Yeah. That was the first thing as a little kid. I thought, that thing's going to go nuts. Yeah. And so here, yeah. he's doing something here supernatural. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, and then, yeah, so I think, I think he recognizes this is how the Messiah enters from Zechariah, and I'm fulfilling this. Um, yeah, so I think he has a sense of, here, here's how I fulfill the mission of the Messiah. Yeah, uh, Jim. I don't know if you're comparing Matthew to it, but it does say, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them 
their cloaks, and he sat on them. Oh, interesting. Which is kind of interesting. I was thinking about yeah. the cult and the mom together, the cult would be less upset than... Yeah. Um, having trouble with pronouns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting... Yeah, that's right. I, I'm remembering from when we went through Mark a few years, or I mean Matthew a few years ago in, in Sunday mornings, that there is that kind of... Um, uh, the language is a little bit funny. It almost sounds like Jesus is sitting on two animals at once, and surely yeah. that's not the case. But uh, yeah, Nate. Um, we're looking at uh, Samuel in Sunday school. Yeah. David is anointed king as like, a very young man, and then he doesn't get the kingdom. Yeah. Far later until Second Samuel, um, and after he's been chased around. Israel and outside of Israel by Saul attempting on his life and, uh, and then um, he enters his kingdom through that, that suffering. Um, anyway, the, the people seem to be excited about a king, yeah. perhaps, uh, but Jesus knows that only through the suffering yeah. does the kingdom come. Yeah. But just the parallels. Yeah. And, and David sort of foreshadows and is a, is a picture of at least that aspect of Christ that he um, he has no hesitation to death, which is quite a like, I'm comfortable recognizing I'm the authority here that has people put to death and yet at the same time he won't raise his hand against Saul and so he's in total submission to God's plan and timing and yet at the same time it's exercises authority and we see that in Christ as well uh, uh, the Lord has need of it and yet I'm totally submitted to God's plan and God's timing of how this Yeah, awesome. Just out of curiosity, are, are there other instances of this historically with other other self-styled messiahs who are like, oh, I guess I better go ride into Jerusalem on a full of a donkey? I don't think so, but I don't know for certain. I don't think so. Just, yeah. I suspect... The commentaries I looked at would have brought it up if there were <laughs> parallels. But I, yeah, so I'm unaware of them. Um, it seems like oftentimes the other self-styled messiahs, it's gathering together a band of soldiers and kind of preparing for military action. Right. Makes it a little more difficult to march into Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, Chris? It would seem like Jesus is the only one capable of interpreting the scripture in that yeah, I. Yes, it is. Yeah, and I, 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 I'm sure I've talked about this before at the chapel. But even, um, uh, even if you go through when you go through Isaiah, you have both promises of a king of the 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 branch of the stump of Jesse. You know these promises of the king, and you have talk about a suffering servant. And the dominant view in Jesus' day was that there's two different figures. One's going to come and suffer, one's going to come and be king, but that those two would be combined in one figure like Christ is, is like just almost unfathomable. That they, it just, it's like uh, oil and water. It doesn't mix together. It doesn't make sense that both, he's both the king and suffering. Uh, uh, yeah, so I think you're right that this, that this insight into, um, and this is where Philippians is so profound as we'll get to the key passage in chapter two, is that Christ commits himself to obedience, even to the point of death. God exalts him in that pattern of humility and then exaltation, suffering and then glory. Um, it's 2,000 years later, now we think, yeah, this is the way the Bible works. And yet, you know, until you see it worked out in Christ, you just think, 
preposterous. That's not the way the world works. Um, you go up to go up. You don't go down to go up. That, that's, uh, yeah, it, it does, like you're saying, it takes Christ to kind of unlock the scripture, and then things start to fall in place, and they go, oh, oh, now I understand how this all fits together. Yeah, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got twelve, at least twelve disciples, and probably more in that room with him. So there, there has to be some degree of orchestration before that. Yep. That, that has to take place. So when you see Jesus arranging this event to take place, he's going to host the supper. Yeah. Arrange like what we would have to make arrangements for a meal to accommodate something that uh, we need to think through and Yeah, and, the, and he tells the disciples it's kind of a similar thing where he sends the disciples to prepare for the meal, and he says there's going to be a guy walking through the street with a jar and follow them. And again, I, I think you're absolutely right that it implies um, a, a plan ahead of time, uh, arrangements, uh, orchestration, is that too strong of a term, that he's, he has a plan, that he's working it out. Um, yeah, thanks, Steve. Well, let's turn to our time of prayer.